0: All right. Well, I have to really quickly tell you how this story or the series began. Uh, this is actually a few months ago. I was hanging out on the, on the back porch. I was with my daughter, uh, Honor Boswell, and our dear friend, Jamie Dunn. Love both those women immensely. And uh, we were sitting around talking about the Bible and about Bible stories and the familiar stories that we learned in Sunday school, right? And what became apparent to us is that those stories are not as well known as we would think it's like we get these little nuggets of the story and aus- oftentimes the the big idea and some of the central themes are overlooked because we just sort of simplify it for a childlike audience in fact one of the culprits of this is something that I used with our kids when they were little the God loves me Bible now not yet. No, don't whistle for this. All right. So, um, I mean, you can tell from the thickness it's probably not going to go far, but, but, uh, I used to read this to my, my children when they were little. And, and again, you, you get a sense of kind of the story arc really quick when you, when you look at the different pictures inside. In fact, I think we have a slide. We can bring this up. Here's a good first picture that appears in, uh, this children's Bible. I love this. It's like, they have no clothes, but they can weave a basket. They like, we, need a, we have no pockets, but we need something. So we've got to carry our fruit in a basket. And, and, and again, you know, it just kind of simplifies the image. Now, of course, the apple is always the culprit. Though the Bible never tells us what the fruit was, it's always an apple. I figured we could make this more applicable. Bring up the next slide. This is from Morgan Corn right there. Um, just for you, buddy. All right. So you get a sense where this goes and how simple it is. And you turn the page and go to the next thing, which is Noah's Ark. Right? And it's always very simplified. Noah's Ark is. And I always look at the Ark and I'm always amazed. Like, why is it always that the animals are stuck doing the laundry? You know, like, like that's how it rolled. You know, I'm like, yeah, we're just working the washboard, man. Uh, It's not really how it rolled. And then I love the story. Noah was God's friend. And he listened to God and God told Noah to build a big boat and Noah put his family in the boat He put many animals in there too And when a terrible flood came Noah and his family and the animals were all safe inside the boat And you read this to a kid and the kid the one thing the kid doesn't know is like why was there a flood? What went wrong? Who's broken? Well, what's the real problem? What's the real core? All of that sort of gets lost in the story. And so as parents and as Sunday school teachers, when we teach these stories, sometimes we miss the big central themes and ideas. We just sort of water down the story, pun intended, all right? So that's what ends up happening. And think about the different ways we do it, particular to Noah's Ark, the flood account, the flood story. Here's how much we water the story down. Bring up that next slide. We decorate in the theme of Noah's Ark, the largest human extinction ever known to humanity. The complete eradication of the human race. And we say, but Johnny, it's great for your bedroom, right? And notice this, this picture of the bedroom, right? Here's this great ark, right? These great animals, the cribs are below the water line, right? <laughs> this is probably the only good theology in the shot, right? Born in sin, as we're that's who we are, right? And then we give them toys to play with. Let's commemorate the great extinction of man. Here's a toy. Apparently Noah's wife looked like Punky Brewster there. I don't know. It's like, fantastic, right? We do this. In fact, just uh, north of us, uh, up in uh, Burlington, there's a church that has converted their entire children's ministry. Bring up that next picture. Uh, Their entire children's building. I know you're like, we're going to drive to Burlington for church now. You know, like, we're going there, man. But again, what's the narrative? Everybody inside the ark lives. Everybody outside the ark dies, right? All right. Mom and Dad, see you later. Outside of the ark, I'm going in the ark. You're going to die in church, all right? It's like, what is the theme? What is the message? What is the problem? Well, that's sort of the problem right there. Is that these things happen so rapid and so quick uh, that, again, a lot of the ideas are missed. But as a kid, all we know is it has a boat and it has animals. That's good enough. Good enough. And even the animals, they never have, like, Lame animals like the the star-nosed mole, that's never going to be in any shot. We're wishing that would have drowned in the flood, right? So, you're not going to see that. But it's just simplified, it's kidified, if you will. But here's the problem then. As we get older, and we start to move into adulthood, the challenge becomes different as we look at Noah's Ark. And it's a little bit like what happens, and I'm nervous because I don't know who all is in here, but it's a, it's a little bit like what happens uh, with Santa Claus, right? I mean, when you're a kid, it's just like, Santa's coming! <laughs> he's bringing presents, and he's got flying reindeer, and he wears all red, and it's awesome, right? And they sit on his lap at every mall in America. It's so cool. But then as you get older, you realize, oh, well, this is, this is myth. And we started getting a little too scientifically minded. Like, well, how could he travel to all the homes in one evening? What would have to be the speed... Would the reindeer explode once they hit Mach 1? You know, I mean, how can you carry all the gear in a sleigh? And, 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 and that's exactly what happens with the Noah story as you get older. It goes from a boat and animals to suddenly, well, can I trust this? Is this reliable? Was it global or was it local? Was it scientifically fit for publishing or, or should I do something else? And then you get into the philosophical problems. Was God just or unjust in exterminating everybody? Men, women, children, the animals. I get the cats, yes. Everything else, I don't know why, right? I get it. And so the flood becomes then a problem as we become adults. Is it myth? Is it literal? How can I pick it apart? Literally, this last week I was reading a guy that was so dead set on picking it apart. He computed, literally computed, the amount of animals that would have had to have been on the ark to fulfill the mandate. And from that calculated, 78,750 liters of urine were deposited daily on the deck. All right? Like, really? That's what you had time to do? Compute the urine on the boat? All right. You are committed to breaking this thing down. But here's the thing we need to do. With this whole story is we need to focus on the real thing that God is teaching. And here I want to say, and, and this is just going to end probably a little bit of the conversation right here, I, I want us to understand when we look at the flood, the issue to deal with is less about geology or meteorology or zoology or paleontology. It's really about theology versus anthropology. Anthropology. So if you're waiting for me to say, is it this long ago and in these conditions, And all, that's not where we're going to go because, again, that's not really the focus of why God is telling it. We get bogged down in all these ancillary things, pictures of animals and pictures of boats, all this scientific stuff, when the big idea is God was up to something, humanity was against what God was up to, and God is going to correct that. And so we want to get to that truth and realize that thing. And specifically, we want to look at this story and all the stories we're going to look at in this series and get to the real core reason of why it's there. In fact, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, now these... He's talking about these Old Testament stories. These things happened to them, the people in the Old Testament, as an example, right? But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. As we look at these Sunday school stories, we reflect on these events, we see the lives of these people. That is for you. Don't just think, oh, the Old Testament, that's that scary place on the front end of my Bible with really long things that I don't remember. But say, this is for my instruction, for my teaching, for my growth, for my health, and so I can worship God. So I can give Him glory so I can know his name. That's the heart. So, if you have a Bible, you can open up that Bible right now. I'm going to move you forward a little bit. I'm going to move you to Genesis chapter 6, but I'm not starting in Genesis chapter 6. You can get to Genesis chapter 6 right now. Go there. That is awesome. That is great. But I am going to start where all things start. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 1, where God injects creation with life. Right? God injects creation with life. You go back into Genesis 1. Where does it start? It starts with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It starts with Trinity, right? The Word is there, the Father's there, the Spirit's there, and they set creation together. And as they speak, the first thing they do is they separate, right? They separate uh, water from land and water from sky land from sky. They separate uh, the day and the night. They're doing all this separation, preparing the environment for life. And then once there is separation, there's population. Where God sets trees and fish and birds and animals. And all of this great growth and expression of God's creativity is thrust into the world. He populates. And then he regulates. And he regulates in a very creative way. He sets up a creation that is pinnacle, that is supreme to the world, a creature that bears his image. He creates man and woman. And he gives them this very unique calling. He says, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Right? That's the mission, that's the mandate, that's the heart of God right there. He wants them to really rule over this and develop this. If anything, he wants them to keep creating as he has created. It is this marvelous, amazing thing of life sprung and life advancing. And he says, man, see that periodic table of elements? Use it as a Lego set. Keep developing. Keep expressing. Keep creating. Keep magnifying life. That's what God wants for them. That's their calling. That's their purpose. That's the heart of everything. It was good and very good. And you're not going to understand the flood unless you understand this because, again, it was so monumental. It was so perfect. It was so complete. And yet, for all of that, that pinnacle of creation, man and woman said, you know what? We're not terribly interested in playing by those rules. We don't necessarily want to go down that path for long. And so while God created by injecting life, The creation rejects God with death. And that's Genesis 3 through 6. First starts with that same creation of Adam and Eve who bear the image of God. They say, no, no, you're holding out on us. We want to be like God. You didn't make us fully like you. And and so we rebel. We're going to eat of this tree that we're not supposed to eat of. And so they consume it. And with that consumption, there's instant separation. Remember back in Genesis 1, God separated for good things. By Genesis 3, the humans are separating for bad things. So their marriage is going to be separated. That's why some of you got in an argument on the way to church where you could worship God, right? Because marriage can be separated. And the union with God was separated, which is why sometimes we sit even in church singing songs while our hearts are distant and empty. Certainly, if you don't know Jesus, you're massively separated from God, right? That was the problem with Adam and Eve. And yet, even in that problem, even in that, that dilemma and that heartache and that brokenness, there is hope. God offers hope. Genesis three sixteen. he says, I will put e between you and the woman. He's saying this to the serpent. The devil, he says, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You read this very obscure little verse and what that is describing is Jesus. Jesus is the offspring. Jesus is the seed. Jesus is the coming deliverer that will deal with the serpent end Satan, sin, and death. Even in wrecked abandonment, there's hope. In sin and separation... There is opportunity for reconciliation. And so God speaks that even in the chaos of Adam and Eve. Unfortunately, it's not going to be right then, right there in the way that we would all love to write into the story. So, culture continues to move forward. You then see Cain and Abel. And there you see family separation. Right? Where Cain just throws down on Abel. Man, I don't like what you're doing. God likes you more than he likes me somehow. Because your heart's right and my heart's wrong. It's all broken. But then he kills his brother. But you go from spiritual separation and marital separation to familial separation. Then you get to the next story about a guy named Lamech. He says, some young punk came and he hit me, so I hit him, so he hit me, so I killed him. Right? And now you have cultural separation. So notice the, the quick acceleration of problems. Marital separation, spiritual separation, familial separation, cultural separation. The human race is rushing downhill like ice blocking in the junior high ministry. That's how crazy it is, right? It is out of control. It's slipping. It's sliding. It's decaying. It's breaking. It's coming apart everywhere, man. The wheels are coming off the wagon. And then you get to a culture we call the antediluvian culture. Antediluvian, big word that just means before the deluge which is not a good word. That's scary. Right? Deluge. It's more than just a flood. It's cataclysmic. It's destructive. Now here's what it says about the antediluvians. It's where you're at. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, "...when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose." Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, I can tell you right now, this is one of the most freak-you-out passages in Genesis. As a pastor rolling in to preach on this, it freaks me out because I'm like, I don't even fully know what to do with all of this. There are different ways we can see this passage, but it sets up why God is going to throw down, open up a can of whoop wrath on these people. Because they are, they are bad. They are bad people in this. Let's break this down really quick. So we can put the pieces together. First of all, the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? That sounds like a really nice, benign, maybe even positive idea. But this phrase, sons of God, is used throughout the Old Testament. And the huge majority of cases, it is describing the angelic race, not the human race. Not describing human beings that are close to God, it's describing angels. And with that, sometimes those angels are good, sometimes those angels are bad. Right? The bad ones we call demons. And what some theologians look at here is that there was this event that was going on where you had human beings that became hosts the demonic world where literally you had demons then empowering human beings taking up resident having a host in human beings and then from that they were marrying other women and they're bringing in this identity this ideology this sense of fallen corrupted satanic sinister agenda in fact, this is so bad, you get into 1 Peter 3, you get into 2 Peter chapter 2, you get into Jude, all these places in the New Testament, and it talks about these particular demons that sinned in the days of Noah with a sin so great, God said, I'm just going to take you and dump you straight into chains. Because you crossed a boundary you should have never crossed. See, that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at this and saying, all right, there was some kind of strange amalgamation Of human men with demonic spirits that took up residence in them. And think about this. Go back to the New Testament. What do you see when demons come inside people? They have tremendous insight. They know things that the human wouldn't know. They have tremendous strength. They can break chains and take out tons of men with one individual. And so what you would ultimately have in this particular antediluvian culture is individuals that are literally like superhuman demonically enforced. Hyper-powerful in sinister ways. In fact, from this it says they were having children. The Nephilim. These offspring. I'll I'll tell you why this is important. This is only important for one big reason. Uh, What God said to the serpent in Genesis 3 is that there would be an offspring that comes that destroys everything you've done. And now what you have is Satan trying to just basically... Breed out the potential for that offspring. His seed versus God's seed. His offspring versus God's offspring. And so you have these Nephilim, these super powerful, strong, mighty men of old. Now here's one of the things I love about myth. All right, Myth is great because myth often points to some deeper transcendent truth. So go back and think about myth. You know the story of Gilgamesh. What is Gilgamesh? One-third man, two-thirds god who are the titans half men half gods the gods are always coming down to procreate with the women so to speak even if you're like i, I don't man i don't do that kind of literature if you saw 300 you get it right xerxes hello there leonidas yes i am a god nice no, he's, he's a punk but you know he thinks he's a god And he's bigger and stronger and faster and more powerful than all the human beings. Again, all these things emanate from myth. But as we find so often, myth usually emanates from some deeper truth. And so you'd have these people again, these super being type people. Tremendous strength, tremendous insight, tremendous power. And then they live long. I mean, imagine, think about your own life imagine what you could do if you live to be 800 900 years old what you could create what you could dream up uh, you know people always talk about that I, I just don't have enough time in life well, these people had tons of time so that strength intellect time right all of this stuff is at their disposal and so this is what God is dealing with in fact, just as a freebie because you came, if you look at all global cultures, you'll notice something interesting about them. They all have a flood. Notice they all have a flood in their stories, in their mythology. And before that flood, it was a uniquely powerful, technological, advanced culture. Atlantis, the, the environment of Gilgamesh, whatever it is. It's like, it's like there, there's these truths embedded in myth. Well, this is the culture you're looking at. Those are the problems. Those are the conditions. But, but here's the real thing you have to get to. As God looks on, He sees the one big reality. He doesn't see mighty men and strength and insight and culture. He doesn't see that. Here's what it says. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. It's all bad. In other words, this is just a big, giant, global WWF event. That's all that is. Right? It's broken, it's corrupted, it's wicked because I don't like fake wrestling. Alright, here's how it breaks down. It says, their wickedness was great. Was great. I mean, it's just, you know, they, they, everything that they, that they even dream up they want to do. I mean, that's what even what it says, right? Every intention is evil continually. Every single thought that begins to rupture into their mind is just a bad thought. It's like a frat guy at a women's only Kager. I mean, it's like, it's just evil continually. It's broken continually. It says they're corrupt. And filled with violence. You think Chicago politics are bad. This is bad. These guys are deeply, deeply sinister. Broken and wrong. But here's the thing. They don't see it. See, this culture is celebrating their problems. This culture just thinks it's mighty. Powerful. Cutting edge. Advanced. Everybody should want what they are. And so they just don't see it. In fact, this is why Jesus is in Matthew 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, it was just life as normal for them. They just did their thing. They just kept chilling, hanging out, no big deal. Because here's the thing you have to know. Sin First, blinds. Sin always first, blinds. And then it inverts your values. Where good becomes evil, and evil becomes good. Right becomes wrong, and wrong becomes right. I mean, this is how deep it had gotten. And, and I look at that, and I go, you know what? In some ways, that's, that's uniquely becoming true for our own culture. I mean, just stop and think about it. Think about how within the context of our culture, and it's not everywhere, but in this strange sort of way, in the context of our culture, there's actually debate, an actual debate that you could see on cable news that will debate whether porn is art, but a nativity is offensive. I mean, honestly, just think about that. I mean, forget your Christian faith even. That anything of a relatively religious benign nature is considered offensive. But porn can be protected as art is what happens when a culture goes blind and inverts. Or change it up a little bit more. Think about this. Uh, think how often violence sells. But peace doesn't sell. Not in the same way. I mean, there's no video games where I get to play just going around passing out bread to the poor, right? You know, this doesn't happen, right? Instead, no, my game I get to play is I get to steal somebody else's car, beat them up, shove them out, drive down the road, hit as many people as possible. Yeah, it kind of hurts suddenly, doesn't it? Think about how often. We are vocal about those with power, but we are silent when it comes to the powerless. I mean, you think that's the place we would be loudest, is with the powerless. No, we get mad about those with power, those with financial power, those with political power, those with media power. That's what we get all fired up about, while the powerless have nobody for them. Such as the days of Noah. We voice our gripes, but sometimes we're silent about our gospel. It, it's this weird thing because, again, you, you look at what it says in the New Testament. It's like we're just sitting back, eating and drinking and given in marriage, having families. And the Bible says, oh, don't you know, though, that the days are evil and the time is short Because what you're going to see in the New Testament, there's always a parallel between the flood and the return of Jesus. As was this, so will be this. So be ready for this, and be what Noah was to be uh, in, in his day, in your day. You see, everybody's just chilling, doing their own thing. Enjoying good food, going out to dinner, having a few beers, drinking Kool-Aid, whatever it is, hanging out with their family, having kids, having grandkids, having holidays, everything else, while the days are evil and the time is short. When you look at this culture, you see that it was personal, personally, familially, culturally, civilly, spiritually, occupationally, environmentally, globally, and covenantally dysfunctional at every level. Everything is absolutely broken. And so because of that, God judges. Right? Well, we haven't gotten to the flood yet. That's crazy, right? You have to understand all of this. It's like, why is there a boat and animals? And Because there was a big, big sin mess problem. And so God judges creation with death. You see it with the coming ruin of the antediluvians. Verse 6. It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now I want to capture this really quick. Um, it starts off and it says, the Lord regretted. And sometimes people look at that and go, well, why, why he dude knows everything, why would he regret? It becomes one of those gotcha things. Well, here's what's great about this particular word in the Hebrew language. It has all kinds of bandwidth. It can even mean contrary things. Kind of it's how it's used grammatically has to kind of drive what the word means. And, and what this is really getting at, I mean, again, different people look at it in different ways, but I think the strongest evidence for what this is saying right here is that the Lord basically audited the human condition. Regretted, that word can mean audited. It means a checking of accounts. So he looks at the human condition He sees that all they are is violent, wicked, corrupt, perverted, twisted, against him in every way. He does an audit and says, yeah, that's way out of balance. And so from that, it grieves his heart. He's just grieved. He sees that the great creation that was good and very good has become bad and very bad. Rebellious and very against him. And so he does the audit and says, oh, my heart is so grieved, so broken. Right? Demons are in men. They celebrate it. They have children that are the titans that everybody loves and reveres and wants to be like, but they are just against my plan, against my program, against my seed, against my offspring. This is all going really in the wrong direction. And so I will step in and I will address it. So it says in verse 17... Chapter 6, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Everything. God basically says, all right, my plan is the offspring that will destroy the enemy. The enemy has come in and he's pumping out offspring everywhere. He seeks to disrupt my plan, so what I'll do is I'll step in, I'll destroy everybody. Everybody. So that nothing is left. The big idea here is just be Team Jesus. All right, you're going to do way better. If you're not Team Jesus, boy, that can go all sorts of directions. And this whole culture has gone the wrong direction. So God says, it's over. I will destroy them all. Now, some people look at this, and the question comes up, well, is that just judgment? How is this fair? How is this right? How is this exactly God's best? I mean, really, is it fair that God would say, enough's enough. He's going to wipe them out. we we'll go back to the story arc. Let's look at this a little bit. First of all, you, you see that there was Seth. That's Adam's replacement gig, right? So Abel dies, and that's Seth. And it was during the life of Seth, that people began to seek the Lord. So we're not talking about a culture that hadn't heard about God, no. As soon as the fall happens, people leave Eden, there's a pretty quick reboot on, hey, we should seek God. Again, team Jesus. They didn't know the name Jesus, but the second person that created everything, that's the guy they needed to follow. So they seek Jesus. Then you have another guy, Enoch. This is Noah's granddad, his grandpappy, if you will. Right? And he also began to warn his generation. He began to tell them, whoa, wait, there is a God in heaven, and you are not following that God. You are turning against that God. You are getting rebellious in light of what God has said and done. And then here's the crazy thing. Enoch's just preaching, you need to repent. Then one day he just goes, David Copperfield, man, he just disappears. And I would think if somebody was saying, repent, 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 poof, I would repent. That got my attention. But they don't seem to repent. So then Noah rolls in. And it says in 2 Peter 2, 5 that he was a preacher of righteousness in his generation. It's interesting. Actually, in Genesis, uh, you never see Noah speak once. That's just a freebie again for showing up. You never see one single word spoken from the mouth of Noah, not one. But in Second Peter, you see that he preached righteousness. He, he told people what they needed. But let me help you here. Seth somehow spoke. Enoch spoke. Noah spoke. And the bottom line, no one wanted it. No one wanted it. Instead, they rebelled against God and spoke against Him. Jude, way into the New Testament, speaks about this. Jude 14 through 16 It says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. He's telling them a couple of generations before Noah, God is coming. And not with your little demonic fallen angels. He's coming with his angels. You think your Nephilim are tough. You've seen nothing yet. 10,000 holy angels empowered by the Most High. You better repent. He says he's coming to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such ungodly ways. He says, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, ungodly sinners are awesome at speaking against God. And while we may go, oh, come on, man, it's just words, freedom of speech, First Amendment. God doesn't see it that way. God isn't into, oh, yeah, let's just go ahead and have a a healthy banter of I cut you down, you cut me down. That's going to go great. No, no, God takes it real serious when this antediluvian culture is speaking against him in ungodly ways with ungodly things. And so he says, man, you, you just, you don't want it. It's like the old joke. I sent the boat. I sent the plane. I sent the helicopter. It's three guys. You didn't want any of them. So is God just? Yes, he's just. He's just. Here's here's the thing with this. Um, even today, if you're ever talking with somebody and they go, um, would a good and loving God really send people to hell? Would a good and loving God really judge? Um, Here's my advice. Don't impose God's love on the conversation to basically um, justify your rebellion. Don't impose God's love on the conversation to justify your rebellion. Uh, Or in any kind of conversation. It's like we go, oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to impose a standard of God. I'm going to take his character and impose it against him without me needing to change what I do. Let me take it a step further. Here, here's the reality I, I find. Um, when people say, a good and loving God, this loving God, they don't want a loving God. Honestly, people don't want a loving God. You know what they want? A tolerant God. Here's the difference. A loving God, what's love? Love is mutually exchanged. Uh, love has mutual respect. Love has mutual investment. Right? Right? To have love, you have to have two that, that pour it toward one another. If somebody really wanted a loving God, what they'd say is, I want a God to love. That's why I want a loving God. But if they don't really want that, what they really want is to just have tolerance, that's a whole different game. They're saying, I want a God that doesn't blame me for what I do. I want a God that doesn't hold account me accountable for my actions. I want a God that I don't really want. I just want Him to tolerate me. I want Him to just be... Tolerant as I ignore him. Tolerant as I harm others. Tolerant as I corrupt myself. Tolerant as I worship idols. Tolerant of me as I attempt to be tolerant of him. That's really all we're dealing with. And so that generation... They didn't want God. They just wanted tolerance. They didn't want to be loved by God. They just wanted Him to basically look the other way with them. And yet God has been slow to act, slow to act. You I mean, think about how long these guys lived. We're not talking like 40 years or 80 years of being patient with this generation. We're hundreds, hundreds of years sending messengers, sending preachers, sending those who can illuminate these people. And you know what? They just don't wanted and so verse 13 of Genesis 6 says and God said to Noah I have determined to make an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them behold I will destroy them with the earth that is like the weirdest statement right it reminds me of like Lord of the Rings when the ants come with the trees and the rocks it's like you know like the earth is going to wipe them out but here's all God does with the flood first of all here's what you have to understand about the flood it's not just rain Read the text. The earth ruptures open. Water gushes out of the depths of the earth. Great torrential rains come down from the heavens. What God ultimately did in Genesis 1 is he spoke and he brought order out of chaos. And we get to Genesis 6, what God is going to do is say, I'm going to remove my order for about a year and just let chaos do its thing. It's the reverse of creation. Right? God just simply says, you know what? I can speak and bring order. And I can just withstand, I can hold back, I can watch it all crush you in a second. And so he says, that's exactly what i do. I'm just going to let the earth do its thing. Creation is a mean place without the grace and order of God. We call that common grace. Every good thing we have in this life is because God gives it. And he can pull away at any second, and you know what? Our, our Man, you name it, waters just will flood us. Uh, we'll suddenly not have an atmosphere, right? Earth just spins off into space or sucks into the sun. I mean, do you realize how finely tuned everything is by God? And so all he does here is he just spins the dials. So that's my plan. I will destroy them with the earth itself. The place that I made good and very good to give them life will be the place that brings them judgment and death. Yeah, we don't teach this in Sunday school. We just don't. And so you have this harsh, foreboding, scary place. But then you see in all of it that God invades creation with grace. Right? All of this sin, all of this rebellion, all of this hurt, all of this disrespect and anti-worship, And then God shows grace. And He shows this grace to a man named Noah. Right? Noah is a man who is saved by grace. Right? Because God is describing here's this culture, they're satanic, they're sinister, they're sinful, they're violent, I will destroy them. But then He rolls in with one of the best words in the Bible the word but. I like big butts, and I cannot like Right? That's, right? We've had this song before, right? We love big butts. And he drops a big butt right here for a reason. All of humanity is sinful, but the Lord, it's the Lord that shows favor to Noah. Right? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor in Hebrew is grace. Here's the thing you've got to understand about Noah. Noah was as jacked up as everybody else in his generation. I mean, that's the thing you've got to get out of verse eight. Here's everybody. God didn't say in verse one, two, three, four, five, uh, everybody's bad, but Noah. And then he gets back to Noah again. He says, everybody's bad. Everybody's broken. Everybody's going to be judged, but God saves from judgment too. And he saves from judgment and grace. So he sees Noah and he shows sovereign grace to Noah. Noah, I'm going to show you my grace. Because God saves. God saves. He's got a program. He's got a plan. He's going to sustain the seed that will destroy the serpent. So he looks at Noah and he says, and you are the one that will carry that. So Noah's saved by grace, just like you and me. We are saved by the grace of God. We are saved by God saying, I'm going to invade your space. I'm going to change your thinking. I'm going to disrupt your heart. I'm going to pull it out, put a new heart in. I'm going to do some work in your life. That is God saving by grace. That is God opening your eyes and causing you to go, oh, wait, I have rebelled. I have been sinful. I'm kind of, in a lot of ways, uh, just like that generation before the flood. Maybe not as evil, bad, wicked. Hopefully you're not dating a demon. That would be awesome, right? Hopefully your kid isn't the offspring of a demon. Freaky. Um, but still, we're all sinful, under judgment. Wrath is coming. And then God intervenes in grace. And so Noah is saved by grace. From jacked up to saved. But then the, here's the cool thing about this grace. This grace doesn't just save. It changes. It changes a person. Verse 9. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He did all that God had commanded him. Break that down really quick. He's righteous. He's made righteous by the grace of God, just like us. Are you made righteous by what you do? No. You're not made righteous by what you do. You're made righteous by what Jesus has done. Is Noah a righteous man because of what he's done? No, it's because of what Jesus had done for him. And again, this is going to blow your mind. What Jesus did on the cross applied to Noah in some way that I don't understand. Read your quantum mechanics books and you can get it. That's all I know, right? But it's like the cross atoned for everybody in the past, everybody in the future. Right? But that's what it is. So his righteousness comes from God because God saves him in grace. But then from that righteousness, it says he's blameless. It doesn't mean he's sinless. We're going to see that in just a minute here. But he's blameless in his generation. And here's the cooler part. It says he walked with God. I want you to tap that for just a second. Remember, Adam and Eden walked with God until the rebellion. And then Enoch, the one dude that really knew God and was taken away. Right? That guy, it says, walked with God. And then finally, a third guy, Noah. Noah. Walked with God. And because he walked with God, it says he did all that God had commanded him. I mean, think about this. He had to sustain a building project over a long period of time. He had endurance in his obedience. It was a a, a great inconvenience, so he had determination. It was a great cost, so he had conviction. It was with impossible odds, and so he had tenacity. And it was the promise that came from an invisible God, so he had faith. Now, all of those things are only going to be true if you walk with God. If you try to do this in your own strength. If God expects something of you that is bigger than you, and you try to do it by yourself, in yourself, through yourself, just saying, I'm going to be committed, you will fail. Every single time, you will wear down, burn out, grow tired, get agitated, hate everybody around you to accomplish the goal because you're being strong enough and it won't work. But if you walk with God, God does the coolest thing in grace. He brings strength. He brings power. He brings fortitude. He brings commitment. He brings this sense of truly energizing you with what you need to do to do it. Because Noah walked with God. He had that. When we daily wake up say, Holy Spirit, I want to walk with you. Father God, I want to walk with you. Jesus, let me walk like you. Then you have what you need to get it accomplished. But if it's going to just be our strength, and I'm just going to be a good and moral person, and I'm going to do right things in right ways, I guarantee you, we'll wear out. Or burn out. But see, no, a man, no, he's changed by grace. Grace doesn't just save, grace empowers And so he obeys. The next thing you see that Noah was a man who was delivered by grace. Verse 14 of chapter 6. God says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Gotta love gopher wood. It says, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you should make it. The length of the ark should be 300 cubits, about 450 feet. Its breadth, 50 cubits, about 75 feet. Its height, about 30 cubits, which is about 45 feet. It's going to have about 21,600 feet. Uh, metric tons of displacement. This is a big boat. This is make this big, big boat. This is make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life it resides in them under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Notice this: God delivers, but Noah still had to build. Right? God isn't just saying, hey, I saved you, kick back. God says, I saved you, and you have some things to do. Grab a hammer. I, I, I saved you in my grace, so start sawing. Oh yeah, no, man, I, I've saved you, but, but you have some responsibility after saved. That's what you see in the life of Noah. Here's the other thing I think is so great about the ark. Uh, and this is funny when you talk to kids and they tell you the story. So here's what they say uh, Noah built a boat and he sailed across the ocean to another land. H- here's what's missing from this ark a rudder and a sail. This thing's a giant bobber. That's all this is. <laughs> this ark's a bobber. You're sailing nowhere, all right? Listen, Gilligan. You know, I mean, it's like you're going no place unless God wants to take you there at the speed in which he wants to take you this is another great lesson we can learn from noah it's a lesson that Noah would really have to rely on that you know what he's not a skipper at all he's not he's just a dude in a dinghy right with a lot of animals which is a drag I gotta imagine so but he's being delivered by grace verse 18. What Noah has is a covenant. He doesn't have a rudder. He doesn't have a sail, but he has a covenant. He says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh you'll bring to of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. And they went into the ark, Noah and the two of all the different animals, everything that had the breath of life, and they entered, male and female, all the flesh. They went into God, in as God had commanded him, and then the Lord shut the door. Notice, nobody's like grabbing a rope. Close that thing! God seals. God saves. God transforms. God delivers. God seals you. Right? The ark is, in a lot of ways, a model of Jesus, a model of salvation, and God's doing the bulk work here. Right? At best, he's grabbed a hammer and a saw and done some work, but boy, God even shuts him in. Because God is up to something. And then it hits. Right? Rain and rush. The skies drop. The earth ruptures. For 40 days and 40 nights, God just pummels the planet. And then after 40 days and nights of just solid descent and ascent, it stops. And for a hundred and fifty days, you know what you have? A bobber in an ocean with nothing but bloated carcasses all around you. Glorious. You think it smells bad inside, you go outside to get a whiff, and you go, I'll go back inside. Those things are at least alive, all right? 150 days of nasty. Verse 22 of chapter 7. says, everything on the land, and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Judgment. But like I said, there's salvation in the context of judgment. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. Now, it's not like God remembered like, Oh, I forgot I had taquitos in the oven. That's not, it's not, you know sorry, I got busy, you know, Jesus and I were chilling, building another planet. You know, it wasn't like that. It was like, what this is saying is, uh, God was coming back around to fulfill his deliverance. So, he extracts Noah from the equation. He doesn't remove him from the planet. God is not going to remove you from your problems always, but he will hold you in the context of those. He can hold you sway in the storm, but he doesn't always remove you from the storm. Is that true? Noah goes through the storm, but He's protected. He's shielded, right? Storm's over, 150 days, stagnant, and then God remembers Noah. And then it says a wind blows, right? Go back to Genesis 1, the the Spirit, the wind was hovering over the face of the waters, and God began to bring order, right? So here, again, the Holy Spirit is there bringing order. The winds are there to bring order. And the waters begin to subside. The cleansing flood that brought judgment begins to subside as they are inside the ark. Now, this takes another 150 days just to subside. Imagine that road trip. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, it's like that's that's a rough road trip, right? 150 days of that. But then the ark finally comes to rest on soil. And do they get out? No. They still have to wait. I mean, they're still waiting around, right? It's like being stuck in your airplane that's landed at the airport of your destination. But you're like, the terminal's right there. and like, we're sorry, but you know what? It's still going to be 30 minutes because they haven't pulled out yet. You're like, come on, it's right there. I got to imagine He's like, the ground is three floors below me. <laughs> but he has to wait. Lesson, God doesn't always move at the pace that you want, but the pace you need. And so... Noah waits, but then finally the day comes and Noah emerges from the ark, and he emerges as a man who was worshiping in grace. He's worshiping in grace. This is that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of the, uh, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered the burnt offering to the Lord. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, "I will never again curse the ground because of man." Right? Noah was a man saved by grace, turned into a righteous man that was a blameless man that walked with God. Did all the God had commanded him. And he steps out of the boat, and the first thing he does is not build a house, take a picture, load up the family, and go checking around someplace. He worships. After hardship and salvation, he worships. But here's the interesting thing: God says, "I will never again curse the ground because of man." For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. You could even say, even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Um, Here's the weird thing. The flood did not get rid of all sin. God says, I'll never do it, even though man is still born sinful. I will never destroy again, even though they are going to be born corrupted. He says, no, I won't do that. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. For while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, uh, it will never cease. God says, I won't wholesale bleach the planet ever again, but I will keep balance. Go back to chapter 6 when he says, I regret. I did an accounting practice. I see that it's out of balance. What God will do from here on out is keep balance. God will keep balance by lowering the age of everybody. Nobody's going to go on for 900 years and be really, really creative with their sin. He says, I'm going to cap that. You're going to see later he's going to cap it by not letting all of humanity congregate together, but we're going to have different nations, and those nations sometimes are going to work together, and they're sometimes going to war against each other. That's a part of the balance that God maintains. There's going to be crop, there's going to be famine, that's a part of the balance that God maintains. He's keeping our human evil contained by some of those hard things that we experience, by some of the divisions that we face. You go, well does that sound like grace? It may not be grace, it's mercy. We call it common grace, but what we mean by that is mercy. And so he's worshiping in grace. It says in chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to move really quick because I know I'm going late here. Uh, and God blessed Noah. All, all the other messages won't be long, as long as this, but we had to build a whole ark here. Get it? Alright. Um, and God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly in the earth, and multiply in it. Doesn't that sound familiar? Did you even know that was there? Like, you know, like, if I would have said that to you, like at the beginning of the message, who said to who? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. He said Adam. God said it to Adam. God said it to Noah also. I, I, I love this because it's like, oh, wait, this is like an Eden 2.0. It's kind of like Adam reboot. This is awesome, right? But here's the problem. Things have changed. Here's what it says, verse 2. It says, for the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea and into your hand they will be delivered. Like Adam had this thing like, hey man, be fruitful, multiply, so do the earth. Everything was very peaceful, very calm, very bringing order, bringing order. And here it's like, hey, you need to go do this, be fruitful, multiply, but it's not going to like you much. It's going to be against you, and you're going to find yourself against it because things have changed, right? He says in verse 4, but you shall not eat uh, flesh with its life, that is its blood, for uh, your lifeblood, I will reckon to a reckoning. For every beast, I will acquire it from a man. Uh, basically, right there, he's saying, "Hey, man, just don't kill road eat roadkill raw or something." It's like he's like, "Don't don't become barbaric. You don't want to do that." And then he goes on and says, "Hey, and then when it comes to human beings at large, man, don't tolerate murder. Right? Don't do that because they bear my image. They have my copyright, my trademark. Don't let them do that." If they take my image from one, you take them. Again, it's not the same as Eden. It's kind of Eden-esque. It's sort of Eden 2.0, but it is different, and it is difficult, and it's about God maintaining balance. But then he symbolizes the covenant, verse 8 of chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and this offspring after you. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and And every living creature that is with you for all future generations, I have set my bow or my rainbow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me and the earth. You look at this covenant, it's universal, right? Man and animals, it's unilateral. God alone sets it. It's unconditional. He will never break it no matter what we do. And God says, so just so you know, I want you to look at that rainbow. Now, nobody really believes that that was the first rainbow ever, like God invented refraction that day. That's not, you know, the idea idea was the rainbow suddenly had significance, that it becomes a sign, a covenant, like a wedding ring. He says, I'm not going to do this. And so we go, yay. Woo-hoo. When it rains in Seattle, it will stop, you know? It's like, um, good to know. Now, most children's Bibles, if you could get that far, would take that and say, the end. It's not the end. It's not the end, and here's why it's not the end. Here's one last thing you need to know Noah was a man fallen, but in grace. The story doesn't end. Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine. Notice the Adam 2.0 man of the soil. Adam literally means of soil. Planted a vineyard, much like planting a garden. And he took the fruit, just like God said, you can take the fruit. But like Adam, Noah goes too far. And it says, and he became drunk, and he lay naked, or uncovered in his tent. Sound just like Adam? Takes, eats, sees his nakedness. See, it's just happening again. It, it, it's all over again. Now, is Noah a saved guy? Yeah, he's saved. That's his identity. But his activity is still going to be sinful. It's still going to be challenged. It's still going to be broken. That's why we need Grace. Right? No sooner does everything get established. God says there's covenant. I'm going to bless you, use you, keep you, and and lead you. And he says, that's great. And why is it that drunk people want to get naked? I don't even understand this. Like, why is their first move? I'm drunk. Clothes are touching me. You know, like, I I mean, I'm, I'm not picking on the guy, but like, Randy Travis, drunk, naked, and in a church parking lot of all places. I'm like, really? Why? I mean, go to Denny's or something. I... But apparently, this is how it works. So Noah still needed grace, and so did his family. It says, uh, then uh, uh, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, that's naked, that's awesome, right? That's what he did. And so the other two brothers took a garment, and they laid it on both of their shoulders, and they walked backwards, so they didn't see the nakedness of their father. Right? One comes in and goes, ah, that is awesome! The other's, we're not going to even look. And so then Noah wakes up and he realizes what his son has done and basically says, you are grounded for eternity. That's what he does. He curses him. And and where this comes into play is that he curses the the group of people that Israel's eventually going to go into their land and God's going to say, I want you to kill all of them. Another real hard text. That goes back to this right here. You know which part of this whole lineage of people is going to go really sideways. They all needed grace. And then in verse 28, it says, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he he died. Sin wasn't gone. Sin wasn't eradicated. His identity was saved. His activity was broken. And needed grace. And as I close, it's the same for us. All of it is the same for us. We need grace. Grace saves. Grace transforms. Grace delivers. Grace does it all. And you know what? We're going to still make mistakes. We're still going to sin. But you know what? We're not sinners. We are saints. you realize that? You're not a sinner if you're in Christ. You're a saint that sins. Know, Know who you are by grace. Live who you are by grace. In a minute, somebody's going to share the gospel with those who may not know grace. I want you to pay attention to that and listen to that message of grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Sunday school stories that um, are more than just Sunday school stories. I pray that we will walk in light of your grace, in light of transforming grace, growing grace, healing grace, developing grace, forgiving grace. May we love you, live for you, seek you and all. In your awesome name, amen.